and welcome to the podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This episode for the Business Week ended 22nd April 2022. This is Ian Haydock. This time, will biotech overcome its current slump? Sanofi on the future of vaccines? J&J's M&A ambitions? Interview with a Korean immuno-oncology challenger? And a setback for the IL-2 approach in oncology. After two years of seemingly unstoppable optimism, growth and IPOs, the boom times for publicly listed small to medium biopharma companies came to a shuddering halt late last year, and 2022 is seeing many companies facing a funding crisis or even closure. Andrew McConaughey writes that the 2020-21 period was fueled by blossoming innovation in the sector, plentiful funding and investor confidence. After the sector came to the world's rescue with near-miraculous COVID-19 vaccines, there was belief it could also rapidly deliver major advances in immuno-oncology, Alzheimer's and gene therapy. That confidence in the publicly listed companies has evaporated, partly due to the sector's R&D news flow returning to its usual unpredictable pattern, rather than the pandemic's dazzling warp speed. Also seeking more predictable stocks in turbulent economic times, generalist investors have jumped ship, and small to medium biopharma shares are now experiencing one of the longest and deepest downturns ever seen in the sector. The Nasdaq Biotechnology Index has shrunk 13.2% compared to this time last year, while the S&P Biotech Select Industry Index, which focuses on small to medium cap companies, is down 34%. Recent weeks have seen dozens of biotechs announcing employee layoffs and shuttering of R&D programs, with several cutting headcount by 30% or more to extend their cash runways. Geraldine O'Keefe, who's partner at EQT Life Sciences, formerly LSP, leads on the Venture Capital Group's investments in publicly listed companies. She believes that the IPO market got seriously overheated in 2020 and 21, which has resulted in the present heavy market correction. An astonishing 140-plus biotech companies are now trading below cash, where their market value is less than the sum of their assets, including more than half of those that had IPOs in 2020 and 2021. Analysts, investors and industry leaders Scripp spoke to emphasise that the collapse in confidence reflects more of a boom and bust effect, and companies coming to market too early, rather than fundamental problems with the business model, or science across the sector, although this does exist in places. Sanofi is betting big on cutting-edge manufacturing and digital technologies as it broadens its vaccines innovation pipeline and gears alongside to ensure agility and flexibility in responding to the risk of future pandemics. Andrew Gangodi writes that at the fulcrum of this new push are two evolutive vaccine facilities, or EVF, one in Neuville, sur Sound, in France, and the other in Singapore, which is the first of its kind in Asia and designed to produce multiple vaccines and biological platforms. The French group is investing 900 million euros over five years across the two EVF sites. In an interview with Scrip, post the groundbreaking ceremony of the Singapore site, Thomas Triomphe, who's executive vice president and head of vaccines at Sanofi, indicated that the EVFs are pivotal to the French group's wider innovation strategy, 
that includes a global vision to emerge as a leading mRNA vaccine player within five years, including for inoculations beyond pandemic use. If I think about the future, every single time when we're going to do new vaccine manufacturing, I'm going to ask the question, where do you do it in the EVF and not build a new building somewhere else to do it, Triomphe said. The executive underscored the importance of such flexible assets that are capable of adjusting to an mRNA platform or a recombinant protein platform or even manufacturing enzymes and monoclonal antibodies. On whether he expects pandemic time regulatory agility to become the norm hereon, including in Asia, Triumph maintained that COVID-19 had shown that it is possible to accelerate these processes significantly, and we can learn from that, and the EVF is geared for such efforts. Talking about plans to build supply chain resilience at the Singapore site against the backdrop of all the turbulence that came to the fore during the pandemic, Triumph said the company was working on that, though it's an industry equation to solve and not one that Sanofi can alone resolve. Single-use materials and plastic consumables were in short supply at the peak of COVID-19, though industry as a whole has been accelerating its throughput, he said. The next three to five years, he emphasised, will be critical to make sure industry is much better prepared should the next pandemic arrive. As it works towards a spin-out of its consumer healthcare business and seeks to become a $60 billion a year pharmaceutical company by 2025, Johnson & Johnson continues to point to a strong capacity for M&A as a driver of its strategy. During the diversified healthcare giant's Q1 earnings call on 19th of April, Chief Financial Officer Joseph Volk said J&J will stick with its historical tendency towards small and mid-sized deals with major acquisitions being an outlier. Joseph Haas reports that the executive said that J&J's annual cash flow has increased to around $20 billion from closer to $17 billion just a few years previously. During the company's Q4 earnings call on 25th January, new CEO Joaquin Duato, who did not speak on the Q1 call, noted that J&J is moving towards a cash-positive position. The company ended Q1 with about $30 billion in cash, compared with roughly $33 billion in debt, for a $3 billion net debt position. Volk insisted that the firm has a credit rating that will enable it to acquire more deal-making firepower if needed. The planned split-off of the consumer health business, leaving pharmaceutical and medtech as a new Johnson & Johnson, will be liberating for both sides, Volk asserted. I've got every confidence that we'll be able to do small, medium and large-scale acquisitions should the right opportunity present itself, he said. J&J will execute the spin-out in 2023. In M&A, J&J will be focused mainly on strategic fit, the CFO explained. With strength already in technological capabilities and scientific expertise, J&J is likely to seek acquisitions where its scale may provide the catalyst for an asset to achieve greater value, he said. I would not get overly locked into size, Walk advised. Johnson & Johnson, quite frankly, has been built through a number of small acquisitions, and really the outliers are these larger acquisitions. But we look at really the strategic merits and then the financial value creation and don't get locked into saying something is too small or too big with respect to adding to our already dynamic internal portfolio and pipeline, he said.
Although the PD-1, PD-L1 market is rapidly becoming saturated with several drugs already approved and many more candidates undergoing clinical trials, Immune Onsia Therapeutics is challenging the space by targeting rare cancers of less interest to global big pharma firms, as well as cancers that have specific molecular signatures. This market is crowded. Still, there are two ways to get approvals for indications. We are confident that we can secure part of the market share by exploring a niche that no one else tries to enter or showing very high response rates, the CEO of the South Korean bioventure, Hung Tae Kim, said in an interview with Scripps Jung Won Shin. Established in 2016 as a joint venture between top domestic firm Yuhan and US-based Sorento Therapeutics, Immunoncia had a large leg up versus other Korean ventures from its birth. It started off with three lead-stage immune checkpoint antibodies introduced from Sorento, along with an initial $10 million capital injection from Yuhan, and the fledging operation could effectively skip the discovery stage and jump right into preclinical and clinical trials. Yuhan wanted to diversify into the immuno-oncology sector, but it wasn't prepared to do this independently. Sorrento had the technology, but didn't have access or infrastructure in Asia, including Korea. Such needs from both sides appear to have matched, explained the CEO. Its lead asset, IMC001, is a fully human anti-PD-L1 IgG1 monoclonal antibody and is now undergoing a Korean phase 2 study in patients with relapsed or refractory extranodal natural killer T-cell lymphoma of nasal type. For this program, the company is initially focusing on the Korean and Chinese markets, which are among the countries where it has exclusive rights. The aim is to file for a conditional approval in Korea in 2026, while in China the plan is to reach an out-licensing deal around late 2023. Going forward, it wants to accelerate clinical studies of existing and new pipeline assets developed independently or acquired through partnerships, and gear up to expand its portfolio of bispecific antibodies and antibody drug conjugates, said Kim. A planned IPO on the domestic COSDAC market in the second half of this year may reduce Yuhan and Sorrento's equity stakes in the joint venture by 4 to 5 percentage points from the current 35% and 32% respectively. Competitors developing drugs targeting interleukin-2 in oncology will have more room to potentially take the market now that one of the top programs is effectively out of the game. Nectar Therapeutics and Bristol-Myers Squibb, who were collaborating to develop Bempegaldesleukin, or Bempeg, in combination with the PD-1 inhibitor Opidivo, have called it quits, leaving only smaller partnerships for Nectar's IL-2 therapy still active. The company said on 14th April they would end their clinical development program for the combination after an analysis of two trials, the Phase 3 Pivot 09 study in renal cell carcinoma and the Phase 2 Pivot 10 study in urothelial cancer, showed that the combination did not reach the trial's thresholds for efficacy. BMS and Nectar said that those two studies and all other ongoing studies in the program will be discontinued. Alaric Diamond writes that the news marks the second major gut punch to the collaboration in the space of a month following the 14th March announcement that the Pivot IO001 trial of Bempeg and Opdivo in first-line melanoma failed to meet its primary endpoint of improving progression-free survival and overall response rate 
while also failing to show statistical significance on the third primary endpoints of overall survival. The companies also unblinded and discontinued enrolment in the Phase 3 Pivot 12 study of the two drugs in adjuvant melanoma. BMS and Nectar unveiled the partnership in early 2018 in a deal that brought the latter firm $1.85 billion up front. But a blinded final analysis by the Pivot 09 Studies Independent Data Monitoring Committee showed that Bempeg Obdivo would not meet the pre-specified boundary for statistical significance on ORR compared with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor control arm in either the intermediate poor risk or all risk populations and the same was true of an interim OS analysis. For Pivot 10, a final ORR analysis likewise showed that the combination did not meet an efficacy threshold for continuing the study. Although the companies plan to discontinue all other studies being conducted under the collaboration, Nectar still has partnerships to develop Bempeg, as well as additional product candidates with other companies as well. That's all for this week. Thanks as always for joining us. Remember to sign in to Script to gain access to all our much more extensive content or register for a free trial if you're not already a subscriber to see what you're missing. Bye for now.